Won't you pray with me? So Father, that's our prayer. That your son Jesus Christ would be magnified. That we would know him rightly. That we would see his glory and his majesty and his strength and his power. But that we would come to know and trust in his love and in his mercy and in his kindness and his grace and his nearness towards sinners like us. Oh Lord, that we would know him and know him rightly. We're going to need your Holy Spirit to show us again from the word today what your son Jesus is like and what is available for the saints who put their faith in him. And so please, Lord, I ask that you teach us. I ask that you show us. I ask that you awaken faith in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, faith to see Christ as he really is and to magnify him and to glorify in him and to worship him. As we study the word now together, Lord, I pray that you would do that. We need you. Gosh, we need you. And so I pray that you would speak you would speak through the words of your son that we're going to study together today when you speak to us. It's in his matchless, wondrous name that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, hello church. My name is Ross and it's good to be with you all today. What a week we have endured together here in Texas. I pray that you are safe and warm and rejoicing in the Lord as we begin to recover from what was a truly traumatic event for so many of us. With the warmth of the sun back on our faces today and with water starting to flow at least into some of our homes again, uh, there are some opportunities for learning that we shouldn't rush away from too quickly. This storm ought to teach us a few things. I know that it has been teaching me some, and there are more than these, but there are at least these that has been teaching me humility afresh as our true vulnerability and dependence has been exposed again this week. We're just a couple of circumstances away from just total neediness and being reminded of that in such a stark way. It ought to humble us. It ought to eliminate our hubris and our arrogance. It's been teaching me empathy, empathy towards the most vulnerable as, as we've had to go without some things this week, without heat and electricity and, and water uh, and, and fresh supplies. Uh, it's been so rich in my mind just remembering that many people never have access to these things at all. My heart's been moved towards empathy and, and towards being a person of, of mercy and justice who is who's moved by, by the weakest of the weak in our society and, and desirous of doing all that I can and all that we can to help them. I've also been taught faith, fresh faith, as I've seen many grow despondent. I think this storm could actually enliven our faith and, and some of the vibrance in our community. It has been genuinely incredible to see how you as a church have served your neighbors and the city. Just remarkable, just God's story after God's story, and we can't wait to tell you many of those over the weeks ahead. And so be of good faith and courage and remember the power of God at work within a community like this church. 
Uh, and then lastly, it's been teaching me longing. Uh, I have set my hope again on another city, on another kingdom, one whose streets never freeze, they paved with gold, uh, one where we will never see the decay and the destruction that many of us have experienced, and that's where my heart is set, and that's where I long to be, but I'm determined to be useful as long as God gives us breath here in this world. Here's what I do know will be good for our souls today. Whatever we go through, our souls can always benefit from a reminder of the gospel that is rooted in the steady certainty of the Word of God. In times of crisis, what we need is what we always need, the certainty of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God so loves the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. We need that sort of anchoring, that certainty, that hope afresh. And so today, friends, let's just do what we know what to do. Let's jump back into the Word. Let's jump back into our multi-year study of the Gospel of Matthew. We have a really short piece of text for you today, which takes place as Jesus and His disciples begin there to make their way south towards Jerusalem. But they take a detour after what has been a very busy season of ministry to catch their breaths in the region of Galilee. It's the last time that they will be there before Jesus gets crucified. And here Jesus offers his second of four very clear predictions of his death, burial, and resurrection. Let's look at it together. And Matthew 17, if you have your Bibles, will just be in verses 22 and 23. Here's what it says. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, now the they there is the disciples. He's been with a, a bigger crowd, but the other gospel accounts, Mark in particular, make it clear that he draws the disciples away with him together to, to catch their breaths in Galilee. And it's them that he speaks to. And he says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they, the disciples, were greatly distressed. Oh Lord, help us as we study your word today. Now, if this text sounds strangely familiar, you might be going, hey, didn't we talk about this just a few weeks ago? Uh, that's because it's not the first account of Jesus explicitly predicting his betrayal, death, and ultimate resurrection. It's the second of four that happen in reasonably short order in the gospel accounts. The first that we studied just a few weeks ago was in Matthew 16. Then he hints at it again on the way down the mountain from the transfiguration experience. Then we have this occurrence in Matthew 17. Then he's going to do it again in Matthew 20. And finally, he'll do it just before his betrayal in Matthew 26. Now, repetition is one of those things you need to look out for in the text and go, why would that be there? Why does Jesus need to repeat himself so clearly on this particular topic? Well, because it was difficult for his disciples to understand and it was almost impossible for his disciples to believe. And so they couldn't take it in the first time or the second time or the third, nor indeed actually fully the fourth. When I was a school teacher in what feels like a formal life, uh, a former life at a large public high school in Johannesburg, I knew that saying things that were important but impossible to believe only once was a complete waste of time. 
I had to try persuade 17 and 18 year old kids um, of the importance and the beauty and the necessity in their life of studying English literature. And so there were things you couldn't say just once. You had to say them a few times. Things like, hey, Wilfred Owen's poetry will change your life but nowhere near as much as W.H. Auden's will. Or things like, it is an excellent use of your young life's time to read lots of Chinua Achebe or Toni Morrison for that matter. Or things like, hey guys, iambic pentameter is truly fascinating once you get used to it. Or things even like, hey, I promise you, having an understanding of prepositional phrases is essential to your cognitive development as a person. I knew I could not say these things once to an audience that lacked understanding. I had to say them again and again and again, even just to be heard by the seeming, seemingly ignorant masses that were my classes. I think that Jesus is being a kind teacher here, but on a cosmic scale. This isn't him reminding them that prepositional phrases are absolutely going to be in the test. I told them again and again and again. This is him trying to prep them for the most brutal suffering and despair and confusion that they will ever have to endure in watching him be betrayed, in watching him suffer, in watching him ultimately be crucified. He needed them to get it. The, the certainty of it, the necessity of it, the centrality of it in what was becoming their belief system. Uh, they had to come to terms with it before it happened. And Jesus is here telling them, hey, it's going to happen soon. Uh, Luke's parallel account tells us that this happens in the midst of incredible wonder and, and marvel. If you, if you remember from last week, Jesus had, had cast a demon out of a young boy and, and, and people are marveling and they're full of wonder and glory and awe. And Jesus calls his disciples aside and in Luke 9 it tells us, he says to them, let these words sink into your ears. Any parents identify with that phrase? Like when you have to put your kid's face between your two hands and mouth the words really slowly to make sure that they get it. Especially if it's bad news, right? News that they cannot understand or believe. Like we are leaving in five minutes. Let this sink into your ears. Or things like, hey, if you do that again, you could for reals be arrested. Let it sink into your ears. That to an extreme extent is what Jesus is doing for his disciples here. He's concerned that they are still marveling at the mountaintop experience and so therefore won't be able to follow him where he needs to go, which is to Golgotha's hill. He can see that they are still drinking in the wonder of the crowds in Galilee and so won't rightly be able to understand the spitting curses that he will receive from the crowds in Jerusalem. And so friends, Jesus warns them and us, let these words sink into your ears. And we get to do it from the other side of the historic knowledge of what Jesus would ultimately endure. We have the privilege of knowing how this played out. And so it ought to be even easier for us to listen and understand. The disciples had no real idea what Jesus actually meant. We do. And so friends, let us by the power of the Spirit open our ears and let His words sink in because I think, <laughs> I think looking back, 
we can see some tremendous encouragement from Jesus' warning. And so simply today, I want to focus on three observations. But I also want to focus on three subsequent responses to those observations. And so this will have a call and response sort of feeling of observing and then learning in response. If you're taking notes, don't worry, I'll go through these one at a time. But here is where we are going. Number one, Jesus knew that he would be delivered over to death, which shows, here's the response, the depth of his love for us. Number two, Jesus knew who would deliver him over to death, which shows what? Which shows the breadth of his mercy for sinners. And number three, Jesus knew that he would ultimately be be delivered from death through resurrection, which shows what? Which shows the source of all of our hope in the world. Number one, Jesus knew that he would be delivered over to death, which shows the depth of his love for us. Jesus' promise here is distinct from his previous statement in Matthew 16, which seemed to focus on the necessity of Christ's suffering. He says, I must, right? The Son of Man must. This one is more about the certainty of the event. Here he says, the Son of Man will, right? They will kill the Son of Man. He knows for a certainty what awaits him in Jerusalem, and he goes anyway. Oh, what love he has for those he was rescuing. Friends, this cuts against any of the temptation that we have to see Jesus as a surprised and unwilling victim of the crucifixion. Some see him purely as a victim of the political power plays of his day, and they were real. That is at play, to be sure. His death is extremely and overtly political, but that is only part of what is happening in God's sovereign plan. You see, God uses that particular political moment to teach people about the upside down nature of power in the kingdom. And he does that for sure. It's clear for us that Jesus sides with with the weak, with the oppressed in that moment, definitely. But we must also remember that Jesus, Jesus isn't a victim of those very political power dynamics that he submits himself to. He is siding with victims to be sure, but he knows full well what he is walking into. Jesus isn't a martyr. Jesus is a savior. And so he says that he is going to be handed over, betrayed, abused by those who have social, political, and religious power. It is true. But friends, we mustn't forget that as that is happening, he is going to maintain the power of the heavenlies all the way through that experience. That's the incredible mystery. He reminds them, I could call all of the angels. This thing would be over in a second. He isn't carried away to death at any point. Rather, he is carried along by love as he passes through hands that believe that they can control him while he is actually rescuing them. Peter obviously had time to think through this dynamic of God's power on display and what looked like powerlessness. And he speaks about it in his Pentecost sermon, which is one of the greatest sermons of all time. It's one of my favorite. He does a full build through the whole Bible. And then he goes, it's your fault. So repent. It's marvelous and it bears great fruit. But he says in Acts 2, 43 in that sermon, he says, this Jesus delivered up. You see some of that same language? Delivered up according to what? 
according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. So there's human responsibility and there's God's sovereignty colliding in this incredible moment. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus knew that he was going to be delivered up into the hands of lawless men and he also knew that this was the definite plan of God. Oh, what love drove him to go through with it. He knew. And friends, importantly, we must also stop to consider that he also wasn't a victim of some sort of Trinitarian conspiracy against him. I see people today in deconstruction efforts playing this dangerous game with the doctrine of atonement and they make it look like um, uh, uh, enlightenment, but it's actually sometimes a justification for faithlessness, portraying God the Father as cruel and capricious, sending his son to pay for the sins of the world as some sort of cosmic child abuse. But friends, Jesus maintains his divine agency. He knows We have seen the majesty that he mysteriously still possesses through the transfiguration. And while it is true that in his humanity he undergoes genuine anguish as he approaches and ultimately endures the cross, moments like this remind us that he does so willingly and with full knowledge of what he is there to do. Jesus warns us of the danger of this sort of thinking in John 10 where he says, For this reason, The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Ah, friends, think about our King Jesus. He knew He knew what awaited him. Friends, most of us are able to endure suffering because it kind of sneaks up on us. We don't know how bad it's truly going to be as we enter into it. We don't know how long it will be or how intense it will be. And so we keep putting one foot in front of the other and we make it through by faith and God's spirit somehow. But imagine the different dynamic of knowing the nature and the intensity of the suffering that awaits you. That would mean that you would need a supernatural force to keep you moving towards it, right? Like, let's think about a week ago here in the city of Austin. I think it's likely that many of us would have taken the opportunity to leave our homes last Sunday if we had known the severity of the hardship we were about to face, right? It was only once you're stuck in it, you're like, well, now I'm in it. Now I've just got to endure it. But if I'd known it was going to be this bad, I would have been out of here. But we stayed and we persevered, at least in part because we didn't actually know how bad it was going to be. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him. Love drove him on. And he went anyway. All right. He knew that he would be delivered over to death. Secondly, Jesus knew who would deliver him over to death. What does this show us? It shows us the breadth of his mercy towards sinners and rebels. This language is going to get a little complex for a second, but it's actually so beautiful and powerful. This language that Matthew uses here is very distinct in the Greek. Uh, He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered 
into the hands of men. This word for to be delivered is very particular and quite rare in the language of the day. Now listen, friends, I'm no Greek scholar, and so I don't wanna get into the weeds of my own ignorance here. I've watched more than enough preachers do that. But those who are real scholars remark that this word was very particular in its usage and meaning. It speaks of the process of handing someone in, in a legal sense. A modern day equivalent, if you can draw such parallels, would be like seeing someone you know on an evening news report from your local police, right? Who's being wanted as a person of interest in a crime. You're like, oh, I know him. I know that guy. And so you call the police. You identify the person. You, you, you tell them that you know them. And then you give eyewitness testimony to the fact that they're actually guilty of the crime committed. And then you agree to bring them into the authorities. That's what this word means. As you then brought them into the authorities and said, this is the person, here's what they're guilty of, they're now in your care. That's what it means to be delivered into the hands of men. It's it's a very particular word, right? Well, it's then of significance that it's used three more times in Matthew's account, this very rare word in the build-up to the crucifixion. Three more times it's used. It teaches us something, surely. Here's where it pops up again. It's used again when Jesus is delivered into the hands of men by Judas. It's used again a second time when he's delivered into the hands of Pilate by the Sanhedrin. And then it's used again a third time when he's delivered into the hands of soldiers by Pilate so that they could crucify him. Again, Jesus' foreknowledge of the treachery and betrayal and shame Shame of being handed from person to person, the very people that he's there to save. His foreknowledge of what he knows he will experience in these three instances makes it amazing that he allows any of them to happen. He's the king of kings. But he does it as an act of divine mercy to the many sinners that would be saved even in the midst of the sin and rebellion of these men who are handing him over. Now, friends, it is true. We see no evidence of any of these particular men coming to repentance in their life. But it is also true that I see elements of all of their sin in me and in us and in the ways that I and we are prone to sin habitually. And yet Jesus willingly submitted himself to their betrayals and to their delivering overs so that, we, so that he could save a sinner like me and a struggler and a sinner and a rebel like you. This is so powerful. Our great deliverer allowed himself to be delivered over to death for us. Let's just look at each of these three delivered over accounts and see what we can learn about the mercy of God. Firstly, he was delivered over by Judas. Well, well, what can we learn about that? Well, well, we learn that he's delivered over by Judas so that we can be delivered from our own betrayal of him. You see, Judas was driven by greed and a passion for his own benefit. Look quickly at Matthew 26, uh, 14 and 15. It says, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me (laughs) if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see Judas's motivation? What is in it for me? What will you give me? 
He is driven by the desire to have his own wants met and realizes that this Jesus won't lead him in a way that gives him any of that. And so he agrees to betray him, to bear false witness against him and to deliver him over for his own personal gain. Now listen, I'm not Judas Iscariot, neither are you. My sins are my own. But I can't help but think that the impulse that drives him is recognizable in me. And I'm sure in many of you, we want to have our own needs met. What will you give me? What do I get out of this? And sometimes this need is so strong that it drives us to betray our Lord, to distort his word, to turn our backs on his ways, to pursue the things of this world over the King of Kings. What amazes me about when Judas betrays Jesus later in Matthew 26 is what Jesus says to him. You know what he says to Judas when he arrives to hand him over? He says, friend, do what you came to do. Friend. Jesus calls him friend. He knows what Judas is up to. And Jesus, instead of resisting him, tells him to go ahead with it. To deliver him over so that he could deliver us from the very betrayals that we would wage against him. Secondly, he was delivered over by the Sanhedrin, again, passed through the hands of men so that he could rescue others. Why? So that we can be delivered from our empty religion. Look at Matthew 27, 1 and 2. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders, that's the Sanhedrin, that's this council that gathers, and all the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, the king of kings. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. You see, friends, Jesus offends the religious establishment. And so they break their own laws. This is such religious hypocrisy. They bring and they believe false witnesses, which is against the law. They issue a fierce beating without due trial. That's against the law. In order to do what? In order to find him guilty showing that their system of morality was pliable to protect self and destroy others. Oh, we do the same. And then they align themselves with someone who ought to be the enemy of the people of Israel, Pilate. Why? He was politically useful in that moment. And so suddenly, suddenly he's respected in this sector of the community. The hypocrisy is staggering. And I suffer from so much of it too. I focus on the sins of others while ignoring the sins in my own life. It's religious hypocrisy. I'm tempted to align myself with bringers of power all the while ignoring the seemingly weak way of Jesus. Jesus is willingly delivered into the hands of religious hypocrites. (laughs) Why? So that he could deliver religious hypocrites like me and many of you from our lives of self-deceit and self-righteousness. Oh, he's merciful. He was delivered over. Thirdly, he was delivered over by Pilate. Why? So that we can be delivered from our own self-obsession and our own self-interest. Pilate is such an interesting character. I don't have time today. My time's gone already. I don't know where it goes. It's like a time warp up here now. I just wasted more of it. But Pilate is so fascinating. He's intrigued by Jesus. He's, he's curious. He tries 
everything he can to pass him off or to not have to deal with him. He even receives a, a prophetic dream of sorts through a, 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 a warning from his wife. And, and yet, even though he finds no fault in Jesus, this happens. Look at Matthew 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, oh, there's nothing that serves my self-interest here, but rather that a riot was beginning. This is a major threat to his career. He took water. Oh, that would be nice. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. As if that could do it. Here's the, oh, friends, here's the power of that text. He thinks water makes him innocent of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus was the only thing that was going to make him innocent. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. They don't even know what they're saying because his blood would cover them and their children in mercy. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Why? Well, in the slightly expanded account in Luke's gospel, we see that Pilate is in a political pickle. He brings Herod in to help him with judgment, but that exposes him publicly to the scrutiny that he's under from the cries of the people. He's in a region that's known in Rome as a troublesome place, a political hotspot, and his job literally is to stamp out unrest. And now what is there? Unrest. And so his career aspirations are being threatened by Jesus, and he's intrigued by him. He knows he's innocent. But the honor that he holds in Rome is at significant risk in front of him. And so he hands an innocent man over to death because he is terrified what of what people will think of him. The cowardice is astonishing. But we are not immune from it. Our real terror is the opinion of other people and what their disapproval may mean for our acceptance, our success, and our upward mobility. And so, like Pilate, many of us on way too many occasions, we fault, we cave, we go with the cries of the crowd. Jesus allowed himself to be delivered over by Pilate, handed over to beating and death, so that you and I can be delivered from the tyranny of people-pleasing, compromised lives and rather live secure in the love of God instead. Oh, what love. Oh, what grace. Oh, what mercy from our King. He was delivered over, our great deliverer. He was delivered into the hands of men so that we might be delivered into the hands of our God. Okay, lastly, he knew that he would be delivered. He knew who he would be delivered by. Lastly, Jesus knew he would ultimately be delivered from death through resurrection. Through resurrection. This is where we know that we can secure our hope. And look at it with me. Verse 22 of Matthew 17 again. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. I think they stopped listening at that point. But he goes on to say, he will be raised on the third day. Look at their response. They were greatly distressed. Now, friends, here's where we need some grace for the disciples. Uh, Mark's account says that they are distressed because they cannot understand what Jesus is saying and they're afraid to ask. They simply cannot take in what he means because nowhere in their worldview is there any sort of notion of a bodily resurrection like Jesus was predicting. So none of them saw it in that light as possible. 
They were either so overwhelmed by their sorrow that they didn't hear him at all, or they assumed he was speaking of a metaphorical or maybe even purely spiritual resurrection on the last day. That's why they are so surprised when it ultimately happens. But look at their posture because they don't hear him on the resurrection. Look at their posture as a result. They are greatly distressed. They aren't dismissive or resistant as they had been previously. They're just grieved and stuck. Friends, this is the end result of living without an understanding of Jesus' true resurrection and what it means. We land up getting stuck at the point of being greatly distressed. And often, with good reason, because we face suffering and trial and strife, but we aren't able to press through that distress towards true biblical hope and joy and faith because we aren't certain that Jesus was raised <laughs> and that as a result, we will be too. Now again, time, again, friends, Peter had time to think this through. And so look what he wrote to a church that was in distress and anguish and deep suffering when he had time to sit and write to them. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's writing to suffer us. But he says, hey, Jesus was raised. And so therefore, we are born again to what? A living, active, ongoing, persevering hope. One that cannot be explained ordinarily in the circumstances except by the empty tomb. Jesus knew he would be delivered over to death for us. And he knew that he would be raised from that death in new life for us. And friends, the tension of being a believer in Jesus Christ is we must live in both essential parts of that reality. His death for us. His resurrection for us. That means we are loved. We can face whatever it is that we need to face. Certain of that love and mercy and grace available for us. And we can actually then go on to face whatever it is that we need to. Sure of God's resurrecting power at work within us. In a tough week, have you considered the resurrection? Don't get stuck just being greatly distressed like the disciples because we don't let it sink into our ears. That yes, he was delivered over to death through the hands of men, but he was also raised for us. And so we can be people of hope. As I close, our deliverer was delivered over to death so that we could be delivered over to a new life. There are some responses that, that we ought to consider today, lest we miss the reminder of Jesus. Perhaps as we close, you would ask the Spirit to show you if there's anything that Jesus has been saying to you over and over again that you've just been either missing or ignoring. And He keeps telling you because He's a good teacher. And so you keep hearing it and you keep ignoring it. Stop today. Stop today. 
Ask the Spirit to remind you how he has delivered you from the ways that you tend to be and sin like Judas or like the religious leaders of the day or like Pontius Pilate. And then marvel at his grace towards you. Run towards him in repentance. It's the most marvelous thing. When, when I read this this week and I said, oh my goodness, I'm more like Judas than I'm comfortable with. I'm more like the Sanhedrin than I'm comfortable with. I'm more like Pilate than I'm comfortable with. That didn't drive me to despair. It drove me to repentance and it drove me to the great mercy of Christ who reminded me of his love even for sinners like me. It's the most joyful thing you can do. And then ask the Spirit, what it might look like for you to live as someone who believes that Christ was delivered unto death for you and delivered from death like you will be. <laughs> That's true. The resurrection is true. The crucifixion and resurrection is true. Where would you need to manifest change to display that truth more clearly in your life? More explicit hope? More grace for others or for yourself? Perhaps a greater zeal to share the mercy and blessing of Christ. Perhaps in the space of perseverance and holiness, some of you are tired fighting sin, so you just stop for a while. No, no, if the resurrection is true, then we can press on. We can keep going. He was delivered over for you and for me. He was raised for us so that we could live a new life. What a shame it would be to not live in the new life that he gave for us. So friends, here's my prayer as, as we close. It comes from one of my favorite passages in the Bible in Hebrews 13. And it's a prayer that we would be a people of this tension, people of the cross and a people of the empty tomb, that we would allow it to change us and so friends, today, whatever it is that the Spirit's laying on your heart and teaching you and bringing to mind, I pray that this would be true of us as a people. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may this God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen and amen.